Have you ever set out to do a task without planning or preparing for it? You start to do something and you really have no idea and you're frantically watching YouTube videos trying to, in the middle of the project, right, trying to figure out how you're going to accomplish this thing. I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said, failing to plan is planning to fail. You know, a farmer doesn't just look at a, cr- a piece of wilderness and then go out and, and say, well, I mean, this is, I like to have a farm here and just throw some seed and, you know, hope for the best. Uh, uh, he plans, he prepares, he takes down trees, he clears out the roots, he prepares the soil to receive the seed. Without doing that, he can be assured of nothing growing. Um, and so uh, I think even Jesus, when he talks about the parable of the sower, and he likens that to evangelism, sometimes the seed of the gospel falls on different types of soil. And he explains the parable to his disciples by saying that the different types of soil are the different types of people's hearts. Some people's hearts are stony. It falls on the pathway and the birds eat it. Others, it has a little bit of soil, and so it springs up, but then the cares and concerns of the world choke it out. But it falls on good soil that has been prepared, and we know this to be being prepared by the Lord, to receive the seed, to receive the word, and it bears fruit. And the question as we move into John's gospel is, how does God prepare the world to receive the word that John has just described for us the word made flesh who came and dwelt among us how does God prepare the world to receive the word of God so if you have a bible or it's also printed in your bulletin please stand with me as we read from John chapter 1 we're going to read from verse 19 to 28 And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask, Father, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the word in turn in repentance to you. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we ask a blessing on it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Who was John the Baptist? That's what the people who are going out to him are trying to discern. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who 
are you? And that's the question we're asking today. And as we unfold this text, the thing that we learn, although John is unique in his calling, in the task that God had given him to prepare for the Word to come, yet what we find in Scripture is that the character of John and the method that he uses, and especially the message, has not changed. And God continues to raise up people to bear witness about the Word, about Jesus, to testify to the truthfulness of the things that we find in Scripture by calling people to repentance. So we see from this text two things, that God raises up a witness and he gives him a message of repentance. And I want to look briefly at those two things this morning. But first we need to answer the question, who is John the Baptist? Remember, John is writing his gospel after the other gospels have been written. He maybe has the other gospels in front of him while he's writing. He does not need to repeat the same things that have been said before. He's writing to a church that's already established, that's maybe in the midst of persecution, who has already experienced all the hardship that came when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, and is listening to all the Jews around them who are trying to figure out how they are to relate to God, how God is dwelling with them, how he is accepting them and their sacrifices, which are, are gone. There's, they're no longer. And so John is writing into the middle of that, and he knows that the church already knows about John the Baptist, who had a, a very faithful ministry, so he doesn't go into detail about describing him. But it, it would be helpful as we're looking at this context to look back at Matthew and how Matthew describes um, John the Baptist. He says in chapter 3, verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, so we got a wild man who's dressed in camel clothes with a leather belt around him. He's eating food that's kosher, but it's on the very edge of kosher, right? It's acceptable to eat, but we don't eat it. You know, it's one of those kinds of things. Uh, You can eat it, but those who eat it are often identified with people who have done that in the past. And the description that Matthew gives us of John the Baptist is the same description given to us in Kings of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet who wore a camel cloak and had a leather belt, right? And he ate locusts and wild honey. And so immediately Matthew is trying to draw our attention to the fact that this is Elijah. But Jesus also describes John in Matthew 11, verse 7. And Jesus' description is fitting. He says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. That is John the Baptist. Why did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. You see, John the Baptist is a figure who occupies the space in between. He is the last of the old covenant prophets. And the prophets were people who were called by God to draw the people of God back to him. You could think of them like prosecutors. They came, and they came prosecuting the people of God, saying, you have not been faithful to the terms of the covenant. And they're calling them to repent, to turn back, to be faithful to God again. And there's no difference between John the Baptist and these other figures. And of course, the strangeness of his person, uh, uh, along with his message, drew people to come out and hear him, right? I mean, we're naturally just drawn to a spectacle. We see something odd and our tension immediately goes there, right? Um, And so that's what's happening. People are being drawn to hear. Let's hear this prophet who's telling us, is this the Is this Elijah that's come, that's going to prepare the way for the Messiah? Or maybe it's the Messiah himself, or maybe the prophet that Moses spoke of. And so their curiosity leads them to go and see. But another thing that happens is that it it makes the religious leaders suspicious. Because if they're in control of the religious establishment, and they didn't sanction John the Baptist to speak, then who did? We're in charge. We're the gatekeepers, Pharisees, Sadducees, the, the, the scribes and the rulers in Israel. We're in charge. And John the Baptist never came to us. He never told us what his message was going to be. He never got our permission to go out and preach repentance. Who is this guy? And so they send their delegates. And uh, they want to make sure that this is a legitimate ministry sanctioned through the proper channels. And of course, Jesus knows this. Remember in Matthew 21, he is telling the story of, uh, of the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, trying to trip him up. They want to know, like, who gave you the authority to preach the way you do or to heal people? And he says, okay, I'll tell you where I got my authority if you tell me if the baptism of John the Baptist was authentic was it real did he have authority Uh, so they you know they get over into their powwow and they say hey we got to be careful here if we say it's not if we say it's not an authorized baptism the people are going to kill us what are we going to do here we're not really sure we don't want he didn't come from us we didn't sanction it so they go back to jesus and they say we don't really know And they're hoping that he's still going to answer them. But he says, neither am I going to tell you where my authority comes from. Right? And so there is this question in the ministry of John the Baptist over legitimacy. And so that's why the Jews are sending this delegate out to ask him this question. Now, because we're just beginning the Gospel of John, there's a couple of things we need to um, get out of the way because John... Um, John uses the word the Jews more than he does any other description of the people of God at this time. Sometimes it's a neutral term, as in the Jews come and they want to talk to him. 
But most often, it's not a neutral term. It's a term that's meant to, to um, define the religious establishment that is opposed to Jesus, the Jews. Now, of course, it's been used in anti-Semitic ways, and we want to make sure that we don't fall into that tendency. We're talking about a specific group of people within the Jews who are hostile to the Messiah. But John doesn't use the term Pharisee or Sadducee. He just uses the term the Jews. So it's helpful for us to understand that. And if you saw at verse 19, it said, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? John is very concerned with witness and testimony. He has scattered throughout all of his gospel signs that bear witness to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is to come. And John's testimony, so this is like John's gospel. He is saying, okay, let me give you another piece of evidence. John the Baptist. This is his testimony. This is what he said concerning the truthfulness of what I'm telling you in my gospel. That Jesus is the word made flesh. Uh, In his seminal book, Evangelism in the Early Church, he defines uh, this witness, this testimony of the first generation this way. I found this quote helpful. He said, What could the first generation of believers do to share with others who had not been present the new life they enjoyed in Christ. They could bear their witness. That is all. They had two things to say. First, that they had believed and had found the claims of the divine teacher to be true in their own lives and experience. Second, they could give the evidence on which they had committed themselves. That is all a historical contemporary can possibly do for later generations or for those who were not there. And that is what John set out to do in his preaching and in his writings. He says time and time again that he has believed. And he gives the evidence which led him to that life-changing encounter with Jesus. His gospel is indeed a witness. And like all witness to Jesus, it is intended to lead others to faith. What can someone do whose life has been completely turned upside down, who's been transformed? What can they do but bear witness to that evidence? They can say, I have believed it, and this is why. This is why I have believed that Jesus, this person that you knew of, who was crucified and is now risen from the dead, that is the eternal word who dwelt with God forever and has now come in the flesh. That's what John's doing. He's parading before us these witnesses so that we too can join in that faith. Again, this is from Michael Green in his book. He said, Eyewitnessing to the facts and this repeated assurance that they work out in experience can lead the disciples at second hand to the faith encounter with Jesus which will produce life. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. They are blessed because when they believe, they do see. Seeing is not believing in this gospel. The reverse is true. Believing is seeing. So John gives us the testimony of John the Baptist. And of course, what's their question? What do they ask? They want to know, who are you? Who are you? And John is emphatic. 
He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. That construction of that sentence means he, he is emphatic. This is true. I am not the Christ. I am not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. But we need to understand why the, the Jews are asking each of these questions. Why is he not Elijah? You see, if you'll remember the Old Testament account of Elijah, he never died. He was carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And so, as, a, as we are likely to do as humans, we speculate on what, what happened there. How was that the case, that he just mysteriously went up into heaven? And will he come again? Because the prophet Malachi says in chapter 4, verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And again, Luke picks up on this idea in chapter 1, verse 16, and he's recounting the ministry of John the Baptist, and he says, And he will turn, this is John the Baptist, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Are you Elijah? And John says, no, I'm not Elijah. One of the reasons why I think he says no is maybe he's not conscious of the fact that he's fulfilling that role that Jesus and Luke so closely identify him with. But I think it's because he doesn't want the people to draw attention to him. He wants to draw attention away from him towards Jesus. And that he makes abundantly clear. You see, the rabbis thought that Elijah would come and settle disputes between influential rabbis' interpretation of the law. So (laughs) Elijah's going to come, and they're going to have a theological conference, and he's going to tell them which rabbi is finally right. And John doesn't want to get sucked into that dilemma, right? And so he says, no, I'm not Elijah. And they said, well, are you the prophet? Well, who's the prophet that they're speaking of? Well, they're talking about in Deuteronomy 18, where God promises Moses that he's going to raise up a prophet like him. He says in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now we know from subsequent revelation in the New Testament that Jesus is the prophet that God promised Moses, who was going to come, who was like them, who would have the word of God because he is the word of God. So John the Baptist says, I'm not the prophet. But then who are you? If you're not the Christ, if you're not the Messiah that was to come, and remember at this time there, there's so much expectation in the air over who Christ would be, and everybody has their own interpretation of who he's going to be. They, some think that he's going to uh, favor their interpretation of the law and purify Israel so that all of them will be Pharisees. Others think that he's going to be a conquering king who's going to ride in and restore Israel from its, its Roman overlords. 
they all have this different idea of who the Messiah was going to be. And John could fit one of those. Maybe he's the Christ. But John says, no, I'm not. He says, what, what does he say? And they're, they're, uh, we have to tell people. We've, got, we've been commissioned by a delegation from the religious elite. And they want to know who you are. You have to tell us something. And he says, okay, I'll tell you. I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now, we read that quotation from Isaiah, and we'll talk about it a little bit more when we talk about his message. But notice he's, he doesn't draw any attention to himself at all. He's just a voice. He's, not, he's a nameless voice. He just has a message to speak. He just has to prepare the people of God. But he's a voice in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place of testing, a place of trial. It's often the place that Israel finds itself because they turned away from God. And it's the place that we find ourselves when we do the same. Well, if John the Baptist is a unique forerunner of the Christ, how am I to draw anything from this? I'm not John the Baptist. God hasn't called me to prepare the way for the word, for the word made flesh who dwelt among us. But if you'll notice that God has drawn us to do the very same thing, to bear witness about the Christ, about Jesus. We may not prepare the way in the same way, but the the way that God continues to raise up witnesses to tell of what God has done in your life is no different than what John is doing. My life has been transformed by the gospel. What do you do when you share your faith? Well, you commend it to someone. You commend it because Jesus has the very words of life, and so where else would you go? And many of us, some of us have grown up in the church, and we've not known any, anything different. But others of us have had radical conversion experiences where we knew there was a period where we walked in darkness and we had no hope and we were lost and God transformed our lives and we bear witness to that fact. And we do that by pointing away from ourselves to Christ. We don't say, well, yeah, I mean, I found meditation and I've been eating a very healthy diet. I feel, you know, I'm working out. I just feel great about myself. You know, that's commending yourself. And those things are not bad in and of themselves, but the message that we bear witness to is of another person. It's of Jesus Christ. We're pointing away from ourselves. He must increase while I must decrease. A much popular Christian witness is man-centered, right? How to have your best life now. The Christian life is not about having your best life now. It's a life of suffering of taking up your cross daily and dying to yourself. That's not easy sell, right? It's not a great PR thing to say, yes, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. It involves death. No, we don't like that. We want want something that feels good, that meets our felt needs, that comforts us and provides peace and assurance that God's going to bless us whenever we need it. Whenever we need it, we just cry out and God will give you a blessing. But that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that should be forefront in our witnessing. When we are telling people, we're not telling them about us, we're telling them about Jesus Christ. 
and what he has done, what he has accomplished. Well, I'm not eloquent. I'm not skilled. I don't know all the... I'm not an apologetics master. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God uses the message of the cross. That's an execution. That's a style of execution. God uses the preaching of that message to transform hearts and lives. And it's folly to the world around us. We bear witness, thirdly, by living counterculturally. We don't do things that the world does, right? We live differently. We are a people that have been called out to be holy and to be separate. And that means that our lives are not conformed to this world, but they're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let me give you one example that I would caution you against. Don't participate in social media debates about Christianity. This is all the world sees of us, that we fight each other online about different aspects of the Christian life. They don't see us come together as the body and share a meal at the table. They don't see how we're caring for the needs of one another when somebody's sick or in the hospital. They don't see our unity. All they see is that we fight, and we fight a lot. Don't do that online. Don't use your social media as a platform to tear down other Christians. That's not the great place to do that. We can have our debates. We can even engage in debates in ways that are pointing people to the truth and showing them that there's error. And we do that here at Hope Church. But social media is not the place for that. Again, also don't be tribal. Love someone who is not the same political camp as you. Oh, you're a Democrat? Sorry. No. They need the gospel just like Republicans do. Sometimes more. Sometimes we need it more. Right? And we need to be able to cross the aisle to witness without the barrier of our political ideals getting in the way. Look at the makeup of Jesus' disciples. They're a ragtag bunch of group that would never have got along under any circumstance. The same can be said for any of us. How many of us would have been friends with each other apart from the work of grace in our lives? Not many, right? But God is knitting us together as one body and making people of very desperate ideas about life one in Christ. And we ought to be able to grow across the aisle and bear witness to what God has done in us. And of course, then the question is, what is the wilderness? John is a voice that's crying in the wilderness. Well, we're in a wilderness. America is rapidly becoming a new mission field. We're not just sending people out to evangelize the nations, but people are sending missionaries to America. The Anglican Church 
in Africa is sending missionaries from Africa to evangelize churches in America. We are a mission field. We are increasingly becoming post-Christian. And we have an opportunity to bear witness in the midst of that wilderness situation. God continues to raise up witnesses and he prepares them through repentance. So let's look at the rest of these verses as he says at the end, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And what does he cry? Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now I want to just read the few of the verses from Isaiah 40 that he is alluding to. Isaiah 40, verse 3 and five through 5, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be refueled, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In this context, Isaiah is giving the people of God a promise. And it's a promise that seems absurd at the time, because they're still living in Jerusalem. They don't need to return to Jerusalem. But there's going to come a time when Babylon's going to come through and completely destroy Jerusalem. And they're going to drag off all the exiles into Babylon. And this promise is for that time. I'm going to prepare. I'm going to send a voice that's going to cry in the midst of this wilderness that's been decimated by Babylon. Make straight the way because the Lord is coming back. What happened when they destroyed the temple? The presence of God left. We talked last week about how God made his dwelling place with man. And the symbolic picture of that was the temple, which was filled with the glory presence of God. But in Ezekiel, it describes before the exile, the spirit of the Lord leaves the temple. God is not dwelling with his people. And he makes this promise in Isaiah 40, I'm coming back, but there's going to be a person who's going to prepare that way. How does he prepare the way? Well, he lifts up the valleys. He brings the mountains low. He makes a wide highway for the Lord, for the people of God to return. And of course, exile, that is also symbolic for repentance. Exile is returning from exile is the same as returning to the Lord through repentance. What is repentance? This preparation that John the Baptist is called to make, the message that he has to send is make straight the way of the Lord. It's a message of repentance. And repentance is a double turning. It's a turning from sin. You leave the idols behind and you turn towards God. It's not enough just to turn away from sin. You'll just turn towards other sin. But you must turn towards the living God. It's a double turning. And it doesn't mean a hatred of the things of this world or some kind of ascetic life but a movement that leads to glorifying God even in the ways that we experience His created world. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Repentance doesn't mean we go and live in a cave somewhere and we wear scratchy and itchy clothes and we feel really bad about ourselves. That's not genuine repentance. We can do that and our hearts cannot be turned. 
We can do those kind of ascetic things that make ourselves miserable so we feel really bad about the way we've lived and yet our hearts are still hardened in sin. That's not what John is calling the people to do. The message in in Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, listen to how he describes repentance. He says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. But listen to what they have been doing. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. So he uses the same metaphor of farming. What kind of soil are you putting in? What kind of soil are you preparing? What are you putting into the soil? Repentance is sowing for yourself righteousness, breaking up your fallow ground by seeking the Lord. And it's a continual process. Remember, one of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door was the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not a one-time thing. It's a continual turning. I need constantly for God to be correcting me and moving me in the right direction because I'm going off here and I need those course corrections. I need God to turn me towards Him again. But that begs the question, who is responsible for repentance? And Again, this is a, a both-and question. Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 2.25 uh, that... that um, We should correct our opponents with gentleness. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And again, John says in 6.65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Who is responsible for repentance? Well, God is. It's a sovereign work of grace where he turns the heart of his people back towards him. But at the same time, it's also your responsibility. Repentance is your responsibility too. In Jeremiah 25, 5, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. See, we have a responsibility to turn ourselves towards God. We tend to put these things at odds with each other. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. If God is sovereign, then how can I be responsible for it? But these are not mutually exclusive. They are compatible truths. God is sovereign and he grants repentance, but he also calls you to repent and turns towards him. We could say that the seed of repentance is a gift of God, but it bears fruit when we plant it in our lives. Even me, as a preacher, urging repentance. I am to urge you to repent. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's part of my ministry is to call you to repentance. To call you to turn back to God. And each Lord's Day, what are we doing? but having our heart redirected through the liturgy to be shaped and molded to have the same desires that God has. 
to have our worldly desires stripped away and we see what God loves and we begin to reorientate our lives towards that. The church needs to repent as well as the world. Sometimes we we tend to get so focused about what's the problems going on out there that we miss what's going on right here and we miss especially what's going on right here. John the Baptist is calling the church to repent. He's calling the Jews, the God's chosen people, the baptized members sitting in the pew. He's saying, repent. That's my job. I was called to cry out, make straight the way of the Lord. We need to ask ourselves, what's the nature of John's baptism? You see, the question they ask him, they they say, then why are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? Now, baptizing was something known within the religious uh, culture of the Jews. They had proselyte baptism where those who would become a Jew would be baptized. It was a sign of conversion, right? Much the same as a believer's baptism is now. Right? When, when an adult comes and professes faith in Jesus Christ, we baptize them as a sign and seal of their confession of faith. Right? God marks them. But what is the nature of John's baptism? He's not baptizing after Christ. He's baptizing before. Is there a difference between what he's doing and what the disciples later do? What Jesus does in his ministry, and we're going to talk more about this next week when we look at Jesus' baptism and what that means and why it took place. But we need to say just uh, right now that this is an Old Testament figure and type. So it is still gracious. God is still marking his people in baptism, graciously pulling them out and setting them apart to be a part of his community. But it's looking forward to the work of Christ as all the types and shadows of the Old Covenant were. Whereas our Christian baptism is looking back on what Christ has already done, that he's died and raised from the dead. So it's it's still gracious, but it's looking forward. And this is why Paul makes a distinction in Acts chapter 19, verse 3. He's talking with Apollos, and he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And then he re-baptizes him. So only time in Scripture where somebody's re-baptized. And that's because they don't yet understand Jesus. So it's not like uh, the Roman Catholics would say this does is nothing. It's completely separate than the Christian baptism. It is separate in a sense, but it's very connected. It's just in a different time. It's before Christ, and it anticipates him, whereas Christian baptism looks back on Christ. The question we ask then is, what is this message that um, John the Baptist is calling? Make straight the way of the Lord. How do we take that And apply it to our own lives. If God has called us to bear witness, then of course he's called us to use the same method that John has. And the same message, of course. The God, we we need to recognize that the God of a culture, of any culture, is is the thing that it worships the most. 
What is enthroned at the very center of that culture is that culture's God. Can we say that our culture's God is the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, Jesus? No, we can't. What can we say is the God that we worship as a culture? Well, it's the self. It's me. It's I. It's the sovereign will of the individual, right? We need to be aware of our culture's God so that we can speak repentance, a message of repentance to them. You see, widespread revival does not happen in the culture apart from our individual repentance. God is calling all of these people out to John the Baptist so that he can prepare a people for him. But the change that takes place where Uh, Later in the book of Acts, they can say these few people have turned the whole world upside down. How did that happen? Well, it happened as a bunch of people, individuals, began to repent and turn from their sins. You see, the gospel is a grassroots. It's grassroots. It works from the bottom up as individual men and women and families are transformed by the witness that we speak and God opens their heart to believe and they respond in faith by turning to God. How is our culture going to change? It's going to change by you talking to your neighbor and telling them about the good news of Jesus Christ and them believing your testimony because God has granted them that and then turning in repentance towards God. And as more and more people do that, hearts and minds are changed and then culture begins to change and the God of that culture becomes the God that we all serve and worship. There have been many others who have tried different ways. I studied the 7th and 8th century in seminary and Charlemagne. Charlemagne was an incredible figure. And he really loved the Lord and wanted and had a, a zeal. But he was a king and he was a head of an army. And when you're the head of an army, you have a lot of power. And he had just conquered the Saxon people. And he felt that the best way to make these Saxon people Christian was to force them to be baptized at knife point. And if they, didn't, if they weren't baptized, then he would kill them. And of course, that would provide a, a large church, right? Uh, as much as I would like to commend that style of evangelism, it doesn't work, right? You can't force people into the kingdom of God. God has to change their heart so that they receive the word, so that their heart of their the the soil of their heart is prepared to receive the word. So we have tried so many different methods in America to garner revival. Right? We have tried emotional experiences. We've tried deep theological education. All of these things are not bad, but they don't guarantee that God will bring revival. What, the only thing that brings revival is when hearts are turned towards Him in repentance. There is no quick fix solution. No educating to bring revival. No medicating to bring revival, right? This is what the secular world does. They think we can fix society by just medicating will fix depression and anxiety and all those things. And a recent study just came out that has shown that depression is not based on the chemical imbalance in your brain. It said, 
Very interesting study I would commend to you because this has become a dominant idea within our society. I just need to take a pill and then I can fix whatever's wrong with me. It says, in our comprehensive review of the major strands of research on serotonin, it shows there is no convincing evidence that depression is associated with or caused by lower serotonin concentrations or activity. We have put so much stock into taking a pill. Something like 25% of Americans take antidepressants. Antidepressants will not lead to revival. We will not create a people that are whole, that are not suffering from the effects of sin because they are at peace with God by taking a pill. It will never happen. These are good things. It may be that you need to take a pill for a time to correct some imbalances, but they will not bring the kind of transformation that only the gospel comes. Revival comes when hearts are prepared to, to turn towards God. So we leave this right, repentance as a church. We're individual members of a church. We make up a collective small society, and we are supposed to be that picture of heaven on earth, right? We're the colony of heaven. Well, how are we leading individually in that repentance? Let me suggest a couple of ways that we, are, uh, we need to l- repent as a church. Two are a lack of attention, and one is giving too much attention. The first is a lack of attention to worship, private, family, and corporate. Not only are we rarely setting aside time to worship the Lord on our own, privately, our own private times of devotion end up being the verse of the day on your way to work, and somebody else is reading it to you in a podcast, and then you're on to Joe Rogan. And that, that's not devotions. That's not setting a time worship where you can dwell in the presence of God and hear him speak to you and you can cry out to him. Until we begin to cultivate personal, but not just personal, but family worship, where we're gathering together as a family. We're opening up the word of God. We're declaring the truths that we find in scripture to our children. If we don't take those things seriously, then why would we take the Lord's day seriously? Why would we take the gathered corporate worship of the people of God seriously? We won't. We'll find ways and excuses to neglect that as well. And so we'll be in church one month out of the one week out of the month. Secondly, we have a lack of attention to personal and corporate holiness. Right? We are not steeped in the ways of walking out our faith. The world looks at you. The world is watching you. They're watching your character. They're watching to see how you react on the job site. They're watching to react to see how you raise your children, how you love your wife. And they're pointing at you. And they're saying, see, you don't do what the Bible says. We like your Jesus, but we don't like your Jesus people. Right? That's what Gandhi said. And many times we're guilty of that. We're guilty of not having our lives conform to the word of God. And so we need... We have a lack of attention to personal, but of course also of corporate holiness. We're watching the evangelical church corrode away when it comes to sexual ethics. They're flat out denying that these things are true. And they're accepting homosexuality. And they're making excuses for it. And we need to, we need to speak winsomely into this situation. 
Now, there's a way where we can be belligerent about this. We want to be winsome. We want to lead people to see that these tendencies, homosexuality and the whole alphabet of LGBT, those things are self-destructive. They're doing harm to yourself. They will not lead to your flourishing. You will not be healthy because of them. We want to care about people who are trapped in these kinds of sins. But at the same time, we want to point out that they very much are sins. And they're sins that need to be repented of. They're not sins that we need to massage and find reasons why they should be acceptable. The third thing is, we need to tell a better story. And this flows right into worship and our personal holiness. See, oftentimes, the people are not attracted to the gospel because we tell a poor story with our lives. Our lives don't reflect the beauty and glory and wonder of lives that have been transformed, that are at peace with God, that have been reconciled to him. And if that's not the case, then we end up telling the same story as the world. It's, it's either God will bless you. If you have faith, he'll make you prosperous. That works in certain environments, right? Or you, you make it so God will heal you and it's kind of the therapeutic God. He'll make you feel good about yourself. And, and of course, the end for all therapies to make you happy, whatever that means, right? And so we don't want to cave into those articulations of the gospel story. The gospel story is the good news that in Christ, God came near to you and he forgave your sins and he reconciled you to himself. And now you're at peace with him. And no matter the suffering that you encounter in this life, it's all working together for your good. That's the story we need to be telling. And it's a story that needs to be painted in our families and the way we interact with one another, how we lead our businesses, how we love our neighbor. All those things are reflected in the story that we believe we are in. God continues to raise up witnesses to prepare the way for the word, we must turn in repentance. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the witness, the testimony of John the Baptist that we're hearing even today. The evidence that he lays before us and the message that he calls us to, a message of repentance, of turning from sin towards God. We thank you, Father, that not only do we are we called to repent, but that the work of repentance is a gift that you give. We ask that you would turn our hearts, that we would be turned towards you, that you would give us love and devotion to you and hearts that desire to worship and to reach out with the same witness that John had, the good news of the gospel. For we know it has transformed our hearts, it will transform others. Help us to enter into that, we pray. In Christ's strong name, and amen. Saints, before we...